welcome to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, film, and art. I'm Andrew Zwerneman, your host. In this episode, we explore one of the greatest works ever written as historical fiction, Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Joining me for the podcast is Mary Frances Lockhart, Director of Writing, a Master Seminar teacher here at Kane Academy, and the author of 22 of our Guides for Teachers. We recently posted Mary Frances' wonderful new guide on how to lead a seminar on Dickens' novel. It's an exceptional tool for teachers, and you can find it at our website. Just go to www.kanaacademy.org and visit our shop. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Classics. We recorded our discussion in Falls Church, Virginia. Mary Frances Lockhart, congratulations on your new guide on Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Thank you, Andrew. That was a, it was a really fun thing to write. I have not, um, I had not read the book for several years, and so it was fun to revisit an old favorite. That's always a great exercise, isn't it? I find that it's really helpful for my own reading to, to sit down and under the pressure of having to produce something like a guide for, for my colleagues to look through the text really carefully, anticipate what you know, good conversation should, should be, what kind of questions are going to drive those discussions. You've done yes, it again. I, I find that I, I see more, actually, doing these guides than I might otherwise, might otherwise see. So. I guess that's one of the reasons why uh, Tale of Two Cities is a classic and why the, all the books that we write our guides on are classics. They, they draw us mm-hmm. back. We keep going back, and each time there's something fresh to look at. Well, yes. it's a wonderful guide. I had some follow-up questions, things that kind of get us into the guide, but also things that I'm going to ask you to th- think about in a fresh way. One thing I wanted to know, and I, I think a lot of my fellow teachers and, and, and our students would want to know or get some clarity about this, when we're teaching A Tale of Two Cities, is there a distinction between the history that's behind the novel and the novel as historical fiction? Can you help us get that clarity? Yes, I, I think so. Um, we don't want to treat history as fiction uh, with you know various uh, narratives of historical events that, that are um, competing in their truthfulness. So we also don't want to treat literature as history. Dickens is not writing history. He's clearly fashioned a story about characters whose reality and circumstances and relationships with each other are the product of his imagination. Um, He embeds these characters in in the historical framework of the French Revolution, and that's important. Uh, that setting is important to the development of the story and and what he wants to the story that he wants to tell and uh, the characters that he wants to develop but the story that he wants to tell is not actually the story of the french revolution it's that's really the backdrop the story that he wants to tell is about this these hand this handful of characters uh, that reside in the titular titles paris and london and it's a story about how they um interact with each other, how they become entangled in each other's lives, and the truthfulness of the story, as he tells it, is really in the, the truthfulness of those portraits that he draws of these characters and how they're brought together and and um, how they affect the events uh, that are unfolding around them and how the events of the French Revolution have impacted their lives. 
Would it be fair to say that if there was a, um, a, a glaring disconnect between the historical context of the French Revolution and the novel, then we would probably take the novel less seriously. But if, on the other hand, we can assume a generally solid connection between the historical backdrop and the novel, on the other hand, then uh, then we can proceed to get to the truth of the of the story as you just explained it. So we're going to get inside A Tale of Two Cities and enter into the world that Dickens has created. Is that a fair way to, to, to kind of sum yes, up what I, you just said? Yes, I think so. I think so. I, that you know, if if he had made some claims regarding the French Revolution that were just not historically accurate, um, didn't even if they didn't ring true to a younger student who who hadn't really even carefully studied the French Revolution. If they didn't ring true as a as a historical reality, then I think the the novel, the fiction, would um, would also not ring true. Yeah. So, um, but he but Dickens is clearly not trying to do any kind of historical analysis or historical representation of those events. He's he's much more interested in in the people yeah. that he is uh, creating and the lives that they live. So it wouldn't be. It would be sufficient for a group of students to study the novel as a unit in the French Revolution. They would need to study a really good um, narrative on that, an historical narrative by a by, by a scholar, by a popular historian. Absolutely, so, yeah, absolutely. So, so something yeah, like it, Simon, Simon Shama's book. To have, mm-hmm. it, it is helpful for the students to have some some knowledge of the French Revolution before they read uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, that's, but it could be it could be as little as the French Revolution occurred, this is a real historical event, <laughs> you know, and these and these are some of the things that happened during that uh, revolution. And uh, that's the that's the order of reading that you would uh, recommend to the to the listeners. You one would study the French Revolution or at least get a an introduction to it first and then read the novel, not read the novel and then get an introduction or, or study uh, an introduction to or st- and then study the, the French Revolution. Is that the proper order? I think so. Yes, because uh, that way they they don't they won't be puzzled when they come up across these events as to their um, whether they're as they encounter them in the in the novel they won't wonder well did that really happen did it happen that way you know so they won't get distracted by that and and they'll be able to enter in more fully to the story that Dickens is telling. It seems like a um, the. the the discipline of not looking into a novel for history is is something like a kissing cousin to not looking inside a novel for moral content, in other words, uh, or mm-hmm. philosophical content. Mm-hmm. It certainly shapes how we think about ourselves as human beings, and, and therefore it shapes our sense of responsibility. But in and of itself, a novel is not... Um, uh, a study in ethics. It's not a. It's not like the Nicobikine ethics, uh, right. or or something comparable in philosophy. Right. Uh, so right. So we're looking. So so job number one for us as readers is to get inside the world created by Charles Dickens. So would you elaborate on that? Would you help us understand what, what is that world? What's the world that Dickens has created in A Tale of Two Cities? So one of the things that I like to have. Uh, well, that I when I was teaching this um, work that I like to have students do, and I, I do recommend it in the guide, that 
um, teachers should encourage their students to begin a timeline uh, right at the beginning. We, we know that we're in the year 1775 and, and time progresses uh, throughout the novel. And I think it's important for the students to keep track of that because again, the events of the time are an important part of the story that uh, Dickens is telling. And he really does embed his characters in uh, those events, some of which are quite brutal and violent. And uh, so the novel begins in 1775, but we get taken back eventually to, uh, all the way back to 1757. And, and so we can really kind of then add that to the timeline as we're going through. And we see that um, those horrible events that happened in 1757 have led us directly to the um, the execution of Sidney Carton in 1792. So we get this thread that draws those things together. And Dickens just masterfully weaves the story across this timeline uh, and and develops his characters across that timeline as well. So we when we first meet Lucy, I think she's 18, maybe 20, somewhere in there. Um, and she, uh, but we see her grow into um, a woman, a mother, a wife, um, a, a friend, uh, a loving daughter to her, to her father. So, so that that time element helps um, helps us see these characters themselves grow, uh, as well as the the story and the, the historical circumstances. And he creates us. He creates for us. Dickens creates for us a um, a world that's complicated. Um, the violence that we see uh, of, of the nobility visited daily upon the French peasants is answered later in the brutality of the revolution. And all the while we have this, this um, comparison, I, I almost said contrast, but in a way it's really more of a comparison between Paris and London, because London is full of its own ills as well, um, particularly the uh, though it might not be wracked by the kind of violence that we see in France, the, the wealthier bureaucrats or bureaucratic system in um, London is men of business that, that are largely insensitive or passive in uh, their observance of these goings on. Um, so, uh, but the one, the one contrast that I think Dickens probably purposefully made is that we do see a court of law come to a correct judgment in the case of Charles Darnay uh, and then when he goes to, to Paris of course he is um, the court there the, the kind of mock court uh, condemns him to death so we do see that there is there is that much difference between the two cities at least during this particular uh, revolutionary time so I think it, it would have been easy in some sense to um kind of draw caricatures of these characters. Uh, and I think Dickens resists that. And um, uh, and I really, and I appreciate that. So these characters, beca partly because of the timeline and the way that he's woven these characters into the timeline and the history, uh, that prevents some of the, that kind of caricature of characters that we might see otherwise. And he also has, at times, in Dickens, is you can hear this in a lot of his work, uh, his sarcasm, his subtle, subtle sarcasm uh, and humor, 
as he, uh, as the narrator, describes some of these situations and some of these places. So we don't recognize the characters because they're, um, you know, super broadly drawn. We actually understand them and recognize them because they're carefully drawn and they're complicated people living in a complicated time. And there's um, much goodness to be seen and there's much wickedness to be seen. And it's not um, it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Sidney Carton, who plays a very heroic role towards the end of the novel, could easily be or could have been structured as a stereotypical hero, but mm-hmm. instead he's a fairly complex hero, right? He is, and and I think I think he remains uh, well. Of course, he would remain complex throughout, but it's still, even at the end, you're never quite sure of what happened to him. You're never quite sure what, um, how he went awry, you know, so how his life went awry. And uh, we know much more about how it got back on track, at least for these last few years of his life and then his, his heroic sacrifice at the end. But we don't, it's it's a bit of a puzzle, and I think that's kind of interesting because um, at first I was kind of disappointed that I didn't know more about what happened to um, get him off track. And then I thought, well, that's true for a lot of people, right? I mean, we don't we don't always know why people go off track, and sometimes they don't even know how they got off track. And and uh, in some ways, we're we're more concerned or more. Um, interested in how they get back on track. What is it that that um, propels them forward into accepting the kind of responsibility and noble action that uh, Sidney Carton accepts and takes on? So if he's drinking too much and not really taking care of himself, if he seems relatively isolated, mm-hmm. uh, living something of a meaningless or purposeless life, and then that's turned around. We may not know how he got to that low point in his life, but uh, we're very interested to see his interaction with uh, Lucy and her family and the mm-hmm. uh, interaction between his life in London and his life in Paris, uh, brief as it is towards the end. That mm-hmm. makes for a very interesting story, even if there are holes in the profile right. of this character, right? Right. And you're right. I, I That's a really good insight. We, we don't know everything about every person that we encounter in life and yet mm-hmm. even in an encounter fresh with a with a person and the the story that unfolds between the two of us or or with that person in some other context that still makes for very interesting observation doesn't it right right and it's and i think you have to, it, it you know an author must have to be very careful with that too and i think dickens is careful with that that he doesn't um let's see Sidney Carton's willingness to sacrifice his life for Lucy is earned. He's he's not a completely dissolute character. Uh, there are sparks of energy and enthusiasm and and certainly intelligence. He's he's very very quick and um, intellectually gifted. Um, and so it's not as if. You know, we get this really dark character, and we don't really know how he got dark. And then, 
all of a sudden he's doing these miraculous things and it doesn't make any sense. Um, I think I think it does make sense in in uh, in how and um, what what Dickens has included is enough for us to make sense of that transformation. Do you think this is a fair description of what happens in the story that? so compelling about Dickens' novel is that there's yeah, we're drawn into the story and there's a great sense of urgency uh, mm-hmm. because of the revolution in France and mm-hmm. it draws uh, characters in from uh, you know the, just about every sector of, of French life and several sectors that we're witness to of, of English life mm-hmm. and the, uh, the stage is set uh, very uh, eruptively, very explosively in Paris or in France in general, and it snares uh, the English characters in such a way that the urgency is is really highlighted for us. And mm-hmm. then that's where we, we find Sidney Carton, that's where we find Lucy Monette and her, and her family, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the story unfolds from within that urgency. And so, and I guess what I'm saying is, there's a kind of understandability about the the lack of some of the character development, and we don't know everything about the, all the characters' backgrounds, but they're all drawn in rapid fire and com- uh, very powerfully, very forcefully into the uh, the strength and the the, the firebrand uh, impact of the of the revolution. And yes. So, and, and that's yes, and 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 remember, we begin with 1775, which of course is not the beginning of the French Revolution; it's the beginning of the American Revolution. And so, it's just we're brought into the story um, in in very urgent times, mm-hmm. and and so all of these characters are are living in urgent times, and um, and maybe that's why their characters are are drawn so clearly mm-hmm. um, you know set against that backdrop of such urgent times which require um, a response in a way or at least a reaction you know a placement within those historical contexts that um, kind of brings some relief to their characters yeah an urgency can break either way it can break towards right. some kind of resolution which would make for the best of times and it can Break towards something disastrous, something violent right. and uh, utterly corrosive, which makes for right. you know, the worst of times to, to play with that opening line of the novel. Do you, do you have a favorite character in the novel? Well, I, I do, and I think it might surprise some people. I, I don't, of course, Sidney Carton would be a, a favorite of many. Um, As and, well it and should. Of course, he is <laughs> undoubtedly uh, interesting and, and, and noble, as we've been talking about. But I would have to say that my favorite character is Jarvis Laurie. Um, oh. He's the one that we meet first. He's the lawyer, um, banking man. It's actually, he's not a lawyer, I'm sorry. He's uh, Striver is a lawyer. And, but um, Jarvis Laurie works at Telson's Bank, and that is his connection to the Manette family. Um, and he repeatedly tells us he's a man of business all the way throughout the novel. And, um, you know, what counts is his business. And um, uh, he keeps on encouraging Lucy, you know, this is a matter of business when they go to visit um, or go to retrieve Dr. Manette um, from Paris. So it, he's just is such a, 
I can see him. I can see all the characters, but I can see him, and I and and when I see him, I I am immediately drawn to him as this man who who uh, tries to stay very professional and um, orderly, and things are just a matter of business. There's, we don't have to get emotionally involved here, but surely his business expands and begins to envelop the lives of um, Lucy and her father and Charles, Sydney, and even uh, Jerry Cruncher and Miss Pross. So I think his, his portrait is really, the portrait that Dickens draws of him is really true to life. He's a simple businessman. He's drawn into the heart of tragedy and drama because, because his business intersects with the business of human beings. And um, there's this passage on uh, right at the beginning page 24 in the, the um, chapter, the preparation. And he is talking with uh, Lucy for the first time in many, many years. He, he knew her as a, as a baby, as an infant, well, uh, as a two-year-old, I believe. And um, so he's seeing her now that he has identified her father and he's coming to get, now he's back to get her and to take Lucy to her father for the first time. And he, he keeps on using the word business. I think it appears about 10 times in these two facing pages. Um, it's a matter of business, regarded as a matter of business, business that must be done. Now, if this doctor's wife, though a lady of great courage and spirit, had suffered so intensely from this cause before her little child was born. So he's, he's saying this to Lucy. And then Lucy inter interjects, the little child was a daughter, sir? A daughter. Um, uh, a matter of business. Don't be distressed. Miss, if the poor lady had suffered so intensely before her little child was born that she came to the determination of sparing the poor child the inheritance of any part of the agony she had known, the pains of rearing, the pains of by rearing her in the belief that her father was dead. No, don't kneel. In heaven's name, why should you kneel to me? <laughs> it's just a matter of business. You confuse me. And how can I transact business if I am confused? Let us be clear-headed. If you could kindly mention now, for instance, what nine times nine pence are, or how many shillings and 20 guineas, it would be so encouraging. I should be so much more at ease about your state of mind. <laughs> and he goes on from there and, and continues to uh, encourage Lucy to treat this as a matter of business, which of course she couldn't. You know, this is, this is her father that they're talking about. And there's a place later, um, again, when he's urging her uh, when they when they do encounter when they go to, to see Dr. Manette for the first time he, he tells her ah business he urged but there was moisture uh, shining on his cheek that was not business at all so mm. there's he uh what, he's was not he, the man he, of business or, or another way to put it might be um, his business becomes um, those he loves uh, he takes the, the he moisture is because he's business. misty. He's, he's kind of teared up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the off-repeated term business, this could well have been uh, a sign of a man who's kind of shallow, incapable of breaking out of himself and mm -hmm. helping others in terms other than strictly business, making a profit, or just transactions. Right. Uh, it, it, it could also be uh, the... the the, the term of a man who's kind of nervous or out of his his um, his element it might mm -hmm. be inappropriate but but what you're saying is this is actually true to his humanity that is this is what the man does f for a living but 
It's also who he is, and who he is is the same man who's helping this gal get her father back and to help this yeah. family be reunited. So you can't you can't divorce the tenderness of his humanity from the the practicality and effectiveness of his of his business. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and yeah. and that comes to play again at the end. You know when um, he ends up going to to Paris uh, for business reasons because after the the revolution has has kicked in in full force uh many of telson's clients are um, fleeing from paris and they're you know trying to figure out their money situation etc so anyway uh jarvis laurie ends up in paris to see after the you know the details of the bank there their bank branch in in paris and and he when he tells Charles that he's going to be going he says well of course I have to go and he might he might be 80 years old at this point or, or you know um, reaching 80 but he you know this is he's given his life to Telson's and this is it's a matter of loyalty to his um, his job but yet while he is there he's absolutely instrumental in um, uh, getting Charles and Lucy and their daughter and Miss Pross out of Paris alive so it's um, the two just get continually interwoven you know his his business as in his his occupation his you know professional occupation and his business as in uh, the human beings that he he loves and cares for that is really a wonderful set of insights Dickens. Well, that's why he's my favorite. Yeah, well, I'm well. That's very compelling. I, I'm still a Sydney Carton man myself, but yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. that's a very compelling argument. Very, very compelling description, and one can't help but be reminded again that that Dickens boy, he could he could flat yes. write a story. He could flat uh, develop a character. Let, yes, let's let's touch on some of the other characters. How about let's uh, let's cross the channel and and touch on a couple of the uh, the French characters and you know I think I think everyone wants to know what you had to say about Madame Defarge Those are <laughs> the, the anti-Lucy <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Madame Defarge is um, she's one of those characters that could come dangerously close to being caricatured by Dickens uh, but I think there are, are a few passages where we begin to see and of course when we understand um the history and how um, the her family history is um, touches upon intersects with the Manettes. Um, we begin to understand the the violence behind her uh, desire for revenge. And uh, there's one passage in particular. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, so this is. It becomes clearer and clearer throughout the throughout the, the story that um, Monsieur Desfarge is really um, an operative working on behalf of Madame Defarge rather than the other way around. She's really the brains behind the operation and frankly she's also a big part of the, the brawn behind the, the operation too. She uh, So on page 225 in the um, chapter the, still, the Sea Still Rises uh, this is when a, a an old um, aristocrat has been found. He had fled, and, and he's been found. And so they're all going to go out and kill him. And 
Instantly, Madame Defarge's knife was in her girdle. The drum was beating in the streets as if as if it and a drummer had flown together by magic and the vengeance, who's another woman that, that um, is kind of a sidekick of Madame Defarge. And the vengeance, uttering terrific shrieks and flinging her arms about her like all the 40 furies at once was tearing from house to house, rousing the women. The men were terrible in the bloody-minded anger with which they looked from windows, caught up what arms they had and came pouring down into the streets, but the women were a sight to chill the boldest. From such household occupations as their bare poverty yielded, from their children, from their aged and their sick, crouching on the bare ground, famished and naked, they ran out with streaming hair, urging one another and themselves to madness with the wildest cries and actions. So I think we just, we begin to understand that um, as violent as they are and as 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 awful, truly, as that is, uh, it's not without a lot of suffering as its cause. And um, she even, Madame Defarge even says that to Lucy. So there's this really chilling chapter in which Madame Defarge insists upon seeing not only Lucy, but Lucy's daughter, because of course she's doing this knitting and she's getting the description of each care, of each of the people that needs to come under the knife, right? Um, and uh, she, so she goes to visit them, and and at this time Charles is also imprisoned, and Lucy begs her to, you know, whatever influence you have to help him um, be free, please use it. And Madame Defarge looks at her and says, you know, uh, why would I? <laughs> you know, why would I care about him more than I care about, um, you know, you're, you're a wife and a mother. Uh, just like we're wives and mothers and you know what of what of our children and what of our husbands uh, you know so it's it's uh, it's vicious she's utterly brutal and vicious but we find out that her brutality is is you know has been unfortunately watered by the brutality that her family has suffered mm, that is such a good insight that reminds me of the... Under the marquee. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. It's, uh, that reminds me of what a great job Dickens does overall in showing us the, the brutality of the old regime and how uh, individual members of the, the peasant class were uh, brutalized. They were dehumanized, you know, just denigrated. And, and then when... It's true that the, the revolution is excessive, uh, but some of that um, some of that objectification, some of that uh, brutalization comes through, even in even in things like uh, you know so many uh, men are referred to as Jacques. It's kind of the, the universal mm-hmm. name for the nameless mass. It's like a number, and mm-hmm. uh, on on one level you say oh yeah you know you might think it represents kind of the humanity of the revolution like we're all in this together on the other hand i think it's a very dark uh, residue of what's happened before the revolution is that all these these uh, poor people have been brutalized and mm-hmm. uh, they're 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 just yeah. you know, like that little boy who's run over in the square and yes. uh, uh, or that scene where the the wine is spilled and everyone goes out and laps it up. You know, they're, they're just mm-hmm. really degraded uh, by their superiors. Yes. And so, you, and I, you know, I'm really convinced. Um, 
I, I, I believe this through through the study of history that the the old regime was incredibly corrupt, and that change had to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, and the novel, I think, part of its uh, its its, um, its realness is that it captures how uh, utterly corrupt uh, the French society was. And yes. so when we see the characters like Madame Defarge uh, and the generic Jacques responding, although it's excessive, it's brutal, it's dark, it's violent, uh, it is, uh, we have to see it in context, both within the novel and when we step back and think about the history of it, within the history mm-hmm. of, of France, and mm-hmm. these individuals were brutalized. It's a very inhumane environment. How about another French one? What about somebody from the the other side of the proverbial tracks, uh, the Marquis? So the Marquis is, uh, this is somewhat confusing, I think, for students at first because we have the Marquis and then we have uh, Monsignor referred to over and over again. And so um, it's the same thing. So he uses, he uses just as he uses Jacques, uh, as Dickens uses Jacques to describe the, the revolutionary man, he uses Monsignor to describe this class of nobles who were so uh, decadently uh, violent towards the peasantry. And uh, Monsieur the Marquis was one of those. And he is the one character, I would say, in, uh, in the whole of the, of the story, he and his brother, that um, I, there's just nothing redeeming about them. I mean, it is... It, they are completely black. You know, I mean, there's some, there's some care, you know, like he, like I was, the argument that I was making about Madame Defarge is that, you know, one could say, well, her brutality is not without cause. Um, but with uh, Monsieur the Marquis, the Evermond brothers, uh, there is no excuse. They, they are just horrible people in every way. And um, as you were mentioning that, that um, the, the running over of the child and his, his attitude towards that. Um, he says, uh, well, he's described without deigning to look at the assemblage a second time, this is after he's run the, run the child over. Monsieur the Marquis leaned back in his seat and was just being driven away with the air of a gentleman who had accidentally broken some common thing and had paid for it and could afford to pay for it when his ease was suddenly disturbed by a coin flying into his carriage and ringing on its floor. Hold, said Monsieur Marquis, hold the horses. Who threw that? He looked at the spot where Defarge, the vendor of wine, had stood a moment before, but the wretched father was groveling on his face on the pavement in that spot, and the figure that stood beside him was the figure of a dark, stout woman knitting. You dogs, said the Marquis, but smoothly, and with an unchanged front, except as to the spots on his nose. I would ride over any of you very willingly and exterminate you from the earth. If I knew which rascal threw at the carriage, and if that brigand were sufficiently near, he should be crushed under the wheels. Mm. And it's just, it's just so, so brutal, so violent. Um, so he's, he's, he is, he and his brother that we hear about later are the. There's no, there is no glimmer of any kind of latent goodness in in any of them. What about uh, Lucy's father, Dr. Monet, who, whom we see both in, in a broken and, and uh, fairly redeemed states? Mm-hmm. I think we, we get to see him in so many different um, so, so many different times, and this is again the, the, the advantage of having this fairly lengthy timeline. We don't 
we don't see him as he was in 1757 until later in the novel. But when we see him then, he's such a, we understand the older Dr. Manette when he goes back to try to help Charles get out of prison. It's, it's the same man. It's this heroic man who's willing to put himself out there to, to help and to rescue. And, um, uh, and in between there, we get, we get a man who was driven crazy through his, by his imprisonment. Uh, and then he... In the old regime. Brought out of that. What's that? In the old regime. Yes, yeah. yes. And he's brought out of that um, through the love of his daughter. But one of my favorite, I think probably my favorite uh, moment for him, although it also is, is very tragic, is when he thinks that he can help Lucy and Charles. So he first goes, you know, he goes, so Charles goes to help his former servant, a family servant, and uh, and then he, and then when the rest of the family finds out that he's gone to Paris, they all go, go after him. And he has found himself in prison, and, and Dr. Manette, because he had been a prisoner of the old regime, uh, it has a lot of clout. And so he is able to, um, he believes he will be able to secure Charles's release. And it looks like that's going to happen, and does happen, but only for a very brief moment, really. And then he's uh, recharged with, with other crimes. And but But Dr. Manette, is so energized and invigorated by the idea that he can um, be of help to his his daughter uh, and her and and those that she loves and that he loves too. And uh, the description of him on page two seventy six in Calm in the Storm um, says, for the first time, the doctor felt now that his suffering was strength and power. For the first time, he felt that in that sharp fire, he had slowly forged the iron which could break the prison door of his daughter's husband and deliver him. It all tended to a good end, my friend. It was not mere waste and ruin. As my beloved child was helpful in restoring me to myself, I will be helpful now in restoring the dearest part of herself to her. By the aid of heaven, I will do it. And what's so tragic is that he can't. Um, and, and when he can't, uh, he's really crushed and he, he begins to return to his, his madness, which Lucy then is able to um, restore him from eventually. But it is, it's, uh, it's such a boy, it's such an up and down with Dr. Manette. And yet it's, it's, uh, it all seems just absolutely truthful and, and exactly what would be the case for a man who's been the kind of man that he's been and suffered the way that he has suffered. It, it all makes complete sense. That's a beautiful description. And it reminds us all of how wonderfully Dickens is able to capture the human condition. Things are, are tentative, they're con- contingent. It's not things are not necessarily going to turn out. It depends so much upon the the free and generous, sometimes sacrificial uh, love that one person has for another. Uh, and sometimes it affects the outcome that the, the character is looking for. Sometimes it doesn't. That's exactly what happens in life. Dickens mm-hmm. has his really mm-hmm. has his finger on. And, on and, the and with him, it's even you know you have this added element that the reason that he can't secure Charles' release the second time is because. He's the one that condemned the the descendants of the of the Evermond yes, family, yes. and Charles is one of those descendants. So it's uh, you know by his own hand, 
and in his own words that his his son-in-law is condemned that second time and so it's just it is so um this is so full of of pathos but it's not um it's not unearned pathos not at all that's terrific Earlier, I asked you who your favorite major character is, and you answered uh, Jarvis Lorry. What about minor characters? Of, of all the characters, all the minor characters that Dickens mm-hmm. creates, do you have a favorite? I do, and um, I really like Jerry Cruncher. And I know, in many ways, he is—he's a horrible person. He beats <laughs> his wife. He's a grave digger, um, but he too undergoes. A minor um, conversion, and uh, and he just seems to me to be a Dickens character par excellence. I, I mean, I, I can see him immediately when uh, he's described by the narrator, and and he, you know, in all of his, um, you know, uh, what's what's the word? Degraded life um, circumstances and habits. Uh, he also is drawn into this this drama of the of the family, the Manette family, and um, and changed by it. So I think that just uh, he he seems to me to be not only a bit of comic relief, which he he is, but um, it's comic relief a, a bit in the way of some of Shakespeare's fools, um, and and of course it is a lot of, of dark humor. And uh, some might not appreciate that, but I I do think um, the descriptions of him are just so are so brilliantly drawn, um, and I and I do appreciate the fact that he you know he's a simple guy, but he's very cagey, canny, um, uh, figuring out ways to make money, and um, and then he repents. <laughs> so yeah. you know there's a, there's something great about that. Well, you and I diverge on a favorite major character, but I'm completely with you on favorite minor. That's exactly yeah. my, my favorite, too. Uh, let's talk a little. I, I want to follow up on a couple of things you said. Your your handle on Lucy is really, uh, really strong, and I think, to my mind, it's very fresh, too. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more about, about Lucy? Because I think she's... Although she's clearly um, an, an absolutely essential and major player in the novel, I think sometimes people s- kind of skip over her, maybe mm-hmm. because she's less dramatic than Sidney Carton, less colorful than Madame Defarge or, or uh, Cruncher, mm-hmm. um, maybe less ch- charming than, than, um, than you know, uh, Jarvis Laurie. So can you so help us understand Lucy a little bit more help us to build our sympathy and understanding of Lucy Yes I so I approached the 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 reading uh, of of the story this time with at least that was one of my objectives was to understand the role of Lucy better because <clears throat> I didn't recall having liked her very much and I did re- and I also recalled that a lot of my students didn't like her very much, and you know, you read in some of the literature, uh, you know, the critical literature that Dickens just didn't know how to draw a female character, and um, and I thought, well, okay, that all maybe that's true. I don't know, but it does seem to me that her role in the in the story is so important that 
um, because it, it, it causes all these transformations of other characters that there's got to be more to her. And, and Dickens has to include that if, if he's going to earn those transformations. So that was kind of one of my goals was try to understand her better. And so I noticed some things this time that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, in in previous readings of the story. And one thing that I noticed, I thought, well, it is interesting that readers often sum up Lucy, Lucy's character, in much the same way that Stryver misreads her. So remember, Stryver is a lawyer, and he he at one point decides he's going to marry her, and then, of course, she will say yes. And we don't see that exchange, but we know that it happens, and we know that it was a a stiff and... and, um, earnest refusal <laughs> so there was no there was no uh you know maybe he could come back and try again uh but he he basically sums her up as a pretty little thing without a thought in her head who would be uh, easily convinced to marry him you know he's got wealth and position and he you know of course uh, she would marry him but um but there's more to her and the first time we see it i think is is uh when she, when we first meet her, which is when she goes to, uh, with Jarvis Lorry to um, reclaim, redeem, um, save, rescue her father, and uh, that scene is just uh, fraught with a lot of um, undercurrents of of fear and. Um, even violence it's there's darkness they go to they have to go to the uh they have to go to paris they have to uh, visit the wine shop because it's uh, monsieur defarge who knows um who has rescued uh dr manette from the bastille and um and now he's he's being housed in a, in a little apartment uh, garret and it's all very dark and poor and um so lucy's coming from london She's been raised uh, as an orphan because she, for all intents and purposes, was an orphan. And so at this point, she's 18-ish, and she's going into a very foreign-to-her sort of situation, and it's and it's fraught with a lot of, um, you know, she, she hasn't seen her father. Uh, she doesn't know, you know, and when she does see him, he's, he's, he's um, a diminished human being. And uh, and he's holding a knife, and uh, so I, I just I was kind of staging this in my own head, and I thought this would be a pretty frightening scene. She doesn't know what he's going to do, and yet she she goes in there, and while uh, Monsieur Defarge and and Laurie are trying to have a conversation with Doctor Manette and kind of bring him into some kind of coherence, Lucy just kind of sneaks along the wall behind and, and, and ends up sitting next to her father on the bench. And just slowly, surely, she she eases him into some comfort. And um, and then that continues, you know, when they return home. And over, over a period of many weeks, um, he is restored to life by her love and attention. And so that's, that's a lot. I mean, that, that takes a lot of strength of character, um, uh, she has to walk with him many nights during uh, during his um, during his recovery, and then again when he relapses, he relapses two more times, and she spends the night walking back and forth with him um, through the night until he can be calmed enough to go to bed. So I think there's courage there. 
um, she decides that she's gonna, she makes a decision that she will love him back to life. And, uh, and she does. She loses a child, which is easily missed in the, um, you know, the, the swift details of events that transpire over a five-year period. We hear that she, she bears a child, uh, little Lucy, um, but then there's another child, a boy, and he dies um, when he was old enough to, to speak and, and, and talk. So that is that's terribly difficult. Um, loss of a child and and then her husband is imprisoned and we might if again if we're not paying attention to the timeline we might not realize that that he's imprisoned for over a year in Paris and they're living in incredibly dangerous and threadbare circumstances and she soldiers on she goes and she goes to visit the the prison every day in the hopes that maybe he might see her she has no hope of seeing him but she thinks that maybe you know her presence would give him some hope if he got a chance to look out the window so it's just um oh and then there's the the declaration when when carton he doesn't exactly declare his love for for lucy but he does they have this very interesting conversation in which she has immediate understanding of what he's trying to tell her and and her compassion uh, is something that that just uh, strikes Carton for sure and and strikes us. And then she uses that compassion in a conversation with her husband later um, when he says something kind of in passing that's pretty negative about about Carton, she corrects him, but she but she corrects him with gentleness, and she corrects him without revealing uh, the the confidence that Carton put in her, uh, put upon her, to not reveal um, what he has told her, which is basically, you know, I'll, I'll do anything for you. <laughs> so, um, but I would never, I would never want to marry you, even if you, even if you wanted to marry me, which is unlikely. Um, I wouldn't want to marry you because I would drag you down into my dissolution. And um, so she's she's largely quiet. Uh, she's almost hidden. Uh, but yet her personality is such as to inspire greatness in the people around her. Um, a lot of mention, too, is made of her home and how she has transformed this little abode for herself and um, Dr. Manette and then eventually Charles and 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 their child, Lucy, and it becomes a gathering place. So just like Lucy, um, Miss Pross and Sydney and Jarvis Laurie are all drawn to visit. And it's it's because of Lucy and it's because of, of the abode itself that has been created by her. Um, so there's, there's, something, uh, there's something really great in her that is subtle. Uh, but I, I think it can't be ignored and we can't say it doesn't exist because because um, it clearly does. It's, it's, it's inspired Miss um, Pross and Charles Laurie and Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay, of course, falls in love with her. She, and she has really restored her father to life. So they've all been touched and moved by her. So there's got to be something that um, that touches and moves them. And I, I think I think the things that I just identified, I think are part of it. She, on page 212, there's this nice little paragraph. Um, the narrator is been, has been summing up 
some of the things that have happened over the intervening years. And he says, ever, ever busily winding the golden thread that bound them all together, weaving the service of her happy influence through the tissue of all their lives and making it predominant nowhere. Lucy heard in the echoes of years, none but friendly and soothing sounds. So I just, I love that line because I think it expresses exactly what Dickens has drawn in the character of Lucy, that it, the service of her happy influence through the tissue of all their lives and making it predominant nowhere. So, so she's, she's this subtle character moving in the background, um, and, and, but illuminating the lives of all of them without any fanfare. And, um, I, I think her strength is, is kind of a, a foil or a contrast to Madame Defarge. They're both kind of in the background as these female characters, and yet they are the center from which the events around them radiate, something like that. That is, that's an amazing profile you just described of Lucy and very compelling contrast that you draw between Lucy and Madame Defarge. Earlier we talked about the urgency that the French Revolution provides as a kind of a stage, or, or it marks the stage on which the characters work out the story of, of A Tale of Two Cities. Mm-hmm. And if, yeah. and if the, the great dark violence is, is sweeping so forcefully on the Parisian side of the story, back in London, what you call so aptly the, um, the largely quiet Lucy. She's, she's largely quiet. This seems mm-hmm. like the perfect antidote uh, dramatically to what's going on on the other side of the English Channel. Yes. That's a very, very powerful, very compelling description of her. I, I'm completely hooked. I want to go back and read the book again. Mary Frances, you've, you've done a masterful job. Everyone should go out, uh, get online, buy that guide. If you teach A Tale of Two Cities or if your reading group is going to go through it, get that guide. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect introduction to the novel. Uh, it's got great questions for leading uh, really good discussions. And for those of you who teach and have to have your students write on the book, give them a chance to reflect in a disciplined uh, rhetorical fashion uh, in an essay or a reflection piece. Mary Frances has some great questions at the end of the guide for that. Mary Frances, thank you so much. Your guide is wonderful. You've done a, a masterful job leading us all into the world that Dickens has created. And thank you for these great comments today. I, I for one, am fired up. I'm going to go read that novel again. And uh, it's just, you've done a great job. Thank you so much for your great insights today. Absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. Classics is a production of the Cana Academy Podcast Network. Our editor and producer is Helen DeSell-Zorneman. We have more great episodes on our website and new ones arriving soon. So please join us again and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. I look forward to meeting you again on Classics. Classics.